Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, everyone. Welcome to your podcast, New Books in Economic and Business History. I'm your host, Javier Mejia from Stanford University. And today I have the great pleasure to be with Mark Oyama and Jared Rubin. Mark is Associate Professor of Economics at George Mason University, and um, he's a senior scholar at the Mercato Center. Jared is Professor of Economics as well at at Chapman University, and he's the co-director of the Institute for the Study of Religion, Economics, and Society. And they are the authors of a recently published book um, by Polity Press called How the World Became Rich, The Historical Origins of Economic Growth. We're going to be talking today with them about the book and their careers. Let me say hi to them. Hi, Mark. Hi, Jared. thanks for being here let me start asking you guys a bit about your your life and and your career um tell me how did you end up writing this book and uh if you can let's start from the very beginning where are you guys from uh how did you decide to um study economics how did you end up being interested in in economic history. Let me let me probably start with Jared. Sure. All right. Well, yeah. Thanks for having us on. Uh, this is a, it's a really nice podcast, and yeah, we're we're really grateful you're having us. Um, <clears throat> I guess my my journey started in undergraduate when I took my first economics course. I was uh, planning on being a math major, which I was, um, and it just so turned out that that's the right combination to be to get into an economic, you know, a good economics graduate department is being a math, math and economics double major. I also had an interest in religion, um, from, uh, from pr- uh, an early age, but not, not really out of, uh, personal conviction. Um, partly because I'm not religious, I think a large part, uh, because I'm not religious and I don't, but yet I, I, you know, fully realize the obvious that religion has a massive influence on the way people act and interact with others. It was something I wanted to understand better. So I took a lot of religion courses and then I went into economics grad school thinking that religion would be something I did on the side. And I stumbled into a class with the man who would eventually become my advisor, Avner Greif, and he has done quite a bit of work in this space, but kind of that the, uh, intersection of history, economic history, religion, culture, and it kind of blew my mind that this was something economists could do. So there was a, there were massive strokes, strokes of luck along the way in terms of getting to the point I am where I'm doing research that I find interesting and that I love. It was, you know, I went to grad school not thinking I could do this type of stuff. Um, but you know, for you know, for you know, my journey at least to that point, that that was how I got there. And then, um, uh, you know, I'll let, I'll let Mark talk a little bit about how we uh, got together on this book. You know, Mark and I have known each other for a very long time now. Um, we actually did our dissertation separately. I was at Stanford; he was at Oxford. But uh, we we both did it on um, our, our, a large part of our dissertations were on usury restrictions in the medieval period. Not exactly a uh, a thriving topic, but you know the fact that two people were doing it around the same time. We obviously, you know, it was like kind of obvious at some point we would you know be chatting. We we um, attend a lot of the same events, and you know eventually you know, just you know stayed in touch and. We had a conversation a number of years ago now, probably you know, six, seven years ago, um, at, at an event, probably an economic history association meeting, where you know, we, we, we talked about the, this, the idea for this book, that there was nothing really out there. And you know, we, I know we'll get into what the book's about, but it really is a text that's, that's meant to cover the big theories in you know, how the world became rich. You know, the, there's, the, there's been a ton of work that's been done on this in the last couple decades, um, and, and prior to as well, but there's been nothing that's really kind of put this together in one kind of digestible, readable place. And it's the type of thing that I think not only professional economists, academic economists will be interested in because not everyone, you know, is up to date on this literature, but we try to write it in a way that non-academics, you know, particularly undergraduates, but also just people gen- that are generally interested in this type of 
academic writing uh, would be able to to see what what the state of the art is in this literature. And we were discussing this. We realized there's nothing out there that is widely accessible to to people, especially outside of the academy. And so we you know, we just kind of push back, you know, talk back and forth and eventually realize we should we should do something about this. And so that's where this book came about. Um, yeah, we, we, we certainly both have, we, we've both contributed to this literature. Um, so, you know, from my own style, I'll let Mark talk about his own work, but, you know, from my own standpoint, I, uh, yeah, I, I wrote a book on the role that religion, particularly, um, Christianity and Islam have played in the long run economic developments of Western Europe and the Middle East. Um, and the, uh, again, that was something that, you know, it was part, I think, part of this path that you asked about at the beginning. And, you know, that's only a small part of this book. You know, both both Mark and myself, we don't we don't favor our own favorite explanations in this book. What we're trying to do is bring them all together. And really also, you know, in the, in the part that I think is original to this book, you know, the first half of the book, as we'll talk about, ends up being... Um, just a review mainly of all the various theories, you know, we organize them and put them together, but of the, the various theories out there. But then the second half is really thinking about how they interact with each other. And that's where some of our own work comes in and some not. Um, so I think that's probably a long winded answer to your question. So I'll hand it off to Mark now. That is great. Mark. what, what about, the, uh, what about your story, Mike? Uh, great. Yeah. So um, I studied um, both, modern history and um, economics at Oxford. So I've always been very passionate about history. I was like, you know, a history nerd, like like many uh, uh, short kids are, um, you know, into the Middle Ages, Roman, his Roman history, a lot of political history, a lot of military history. And I, I did history at Oxford and um, when I was, doing, and I, as well as economics. And um, I guess before I started that program, I assumed that the two disciplines were entirely separate, but you do history, you do economics. Um, but I didn't quite realize there was a subject called economic history, which was uh, the intersection of the two. And actually, the, a large component of that modern history and economics course is is is, the, is economic history. And so I actually didn't initially love it that much, although I was very lucky because I was exposed to a lot of um, really good uh, lectures and tutorials. Uh, uh, Bob Allen, uh, who who who's uh, you know now at Abu Dhabi, who was a professor at Oxford at the time, and I think he he was teaching the undergraduate students. So we had tutorials from from Bob Allen and, and Jane Humphreys and um and a lot of leading economic historians. Um, so I got exposed to it quite early on at, a, at quite a high level, the topic of economic history. And then when I went on to um, graduate school, I actually didn't initially want to study economic history. I was more interested in studying. Um, well, interested is a, is a strong word, but I thought it was good for my career to study economics, basically. And so um, I started the MPhil at Oxford with um, with the uh, idea that maybe I wouldn't stay and do a PhD. Maybe I'd leave after two years and get a job in economic consulting or you know uh, some central bank stuff. Uh, those types of jobs which are available if you do a do the MPhil uh, at Oxford. But I ended up um, liking academic life a little bit too much um and staying on and, and, and completing a phd and at that point was when i really discovered some of the work that um jared was talking about the kind of institutional analysis so particularly uh douglas north uh, avner greif and that type of institutional work and after a lot of um playing around with other topics and realizing that i wasn't that interested or well suited to doing work on on say macro economics, I decided to go back to and, and really focus on economic history, but particularly from an institutional angle. So actually, um, unlike, I guess, at Stanford, there wasn't a lot of um, institutional economics at Oxford. There was, um, you know, very much traditional clear metric economic history. So um, Nick Carney was was my advisor, and he, he did, he's done seminal work on on data, on collecting data and uh, and uh, various um, series of prices and prices and prices and costs and wages from Industrial Revolution England. So that was kind of where, where I was studying my studying studying my studies. But I but I was drawn to this institutional work, and that's what I've mostly pursued uh, in my career going forward. Really at the intersection of economics and history, and I think that's uh, an area of research which has really flourished, and you know a lot of people are now involved in it. So it's a much bigger area of research than it was fifteen years ago, twenty years ago. I think. Um, 
And the book, yeah, uh, Jared has told told the story somewhat of how we came to write write uh, or came to have the idea of writing the book. But the book really is designed to be a one course, a one. Uh, uh, if you're taking a, a one course on world economic history, global economic history, or indeed. Um, if you're doing a development economics course, but you want to understand like how we got to where we are, this is a book which is only 200 pages, but it's really going to summarize um, what we've learned, particularly what we've learned in the past 20 years. Uh, there are a lot of older books which cover a lot of the historical background and uh, which are really good, but they they don't take us up. They don't take a student or uh, um, early stage researcher or someone who's just on the margins of it, you know, not deep in this in this field. Um, how do they get to the frontier? How do they understand how these how these you know how this work fits together? You know, uh, how does it relate to each other? That's what our book is is, is doing, and I think it's. Um, I hope it's going to find its audience because I think it's yeah it's somewhat unique there, and it it really covers a lot of. Uh, top research papers from the past 20 years, but it does so in a way that puts them in historical context. It's not about just using uh, the past to test economic theories. It's about really using economics to understand uh, the past, particularly the history of growth, the, the um, development and evolution of the modern world economy. Right, let's talk then about that. Let's talk about the, um, the book. So. Um... I had a great time reading it. I teach a course here called Wealth of Nations. So it's basically a course on economic growth that um, has an emphasis on global history. So I was fascinated by, by the fact that now there's going to be like a one book that is going to make my life easier. Um, because, I mean, I agree with you. The fact that it's quite hard to find the right material for an undergrad course and um in this topic in the sense that you want something that keeps some cohesion, but it's uh, digestible for undergrads. And, and I think you do a great job uh, with that. But um, to give some context to the audience, what are those explanations that you summarize in, in the book? What are those large explanations on why the world became, became rich? I guess I can start. Um, yeah. So after an introductory chapter, the first half of the book, we have five, we, we set five chapters that we where we organized and we kind of went back and forth a little bit on this when we we're thinking about it. Some were obvious, some were less obvious into what are the primary kind of sets of explanations. So the, the, the first one we go over is geography, which um, incorporates a lot, you know, it, it's climate, it's soil it's temperature, you know, it's, it's things that, you know, the things that, that we think of are uh, as geography, but the, there's been a wide, wide array of different explanations that are geography based, but, um, also often interact with other things. So sometimes it's just geography. It's how close you are to the equator or something like that. Other times, and we go over this a little later in the book as well, it might be how geography affected institutions, things like that. Then the next chapter is about institutions. Um, this has been, you know, so Mark was talking about, say, the works of like Douglas North. He's was kind of the, uh, the, the person who brought back institutions into uh into economics and economic history. It was something that was big in the late 19th and early 20th century, but was something that was largely uh, put to the side. Now, now it's one of the, I think, primary ways that people study economic history beyond you know, the, the cleometric uh, revolution that Mark discussed. And when we talk about institutions, you know, we might be talking about political, legal, you know, even social institutions, things like this, that are, you know, is you know, the famous quote by North is that it's the rules of the game, that it sets up, you know, the, the, the incentives by which we interact with each other. Um, and we just, we, we go through a, a long list of, you know, we, we try to organize it, of course. It's not just, it, this is not one of these books where we're just, every paragraph is just a short summary of, of papers. You know, you could do that by yourself by reading abstracts. We, what we really try to do is bring them together and think about how they fit into a broader explanation. We then have a chapter on culture, which is also something that was popular in, let's say, the early 20th and, and certainly before the late 19th century as far as, as an explanation for why parts of Europe were succeeding. But the recent literature is very different. 
that, than that literature. Um, so that old literature was very Eurocentric, um, probably at best racist at worst. Um, you know, it was seeking aspects of European culture that made it better or, you know, what, you know, whatever the explanation was trying to be. Whereas now we, we kind of look at, you know, so, so the, the pendulum swung pretty far against those type of explanations. And I think again, for good reason, they were, they were grounded in, in not so, uh, Yeah, grounded in bad things. Let's put it that way. Um, uh, But the pendulum might have swung too far in in that this, you know, we we shouldn't necessarily think that culture plays no role. So the the recent literature kind of follows in the works of cultural anthropologists uh, like Boyd and Richardson, who were kind of the the real kind of leaders in the the 80s and 90s in terms of bringing cultural anthropology back into something that became big and cross-disciplinary. And then recently, you know, some of your listeners might know about Joe Henrik, who's had a, a couple of really good books and really accessible books in the last few years that kind of, that links kind of these cultural ideas to economic ideas. And that's where that literature has largely gone. Um, and so what we try to do is link, is again, it's kind of summarize, but also organize all of these different cultural uh, explanations into why certain parts of the world have become rich, but also, you know, and I guess another thing we should say here too, is that it's not just why certain parts of the world have become rich, but it's why others either caught up, took a while to catch up or still haven't caught up. All of that is part of this part of what we're trying to do here. Um, and then we have two more sets of explanations. One is demographic, which is probably, you know, arguably the oldest in the social sciences goes back to Malthus and you know, the fa- famous Malthusian theory that you know, the, the lot of humanity was mostly going to be right around subsistence because even when you had a one-off advance, whether it be technological, organizational, or, you know, some type of uh, massive uh, you know, death event like a plague, uh, eventually you'd have more children and those children would eat up all the... Um, the surplus, but you know, there's been some pretty good work recently that suggests that you know Malthus might have been right, and we can use the Malthusian logic to think through the pre-industrial world. But how does this change when you have a shift in uh, birth and death rates? And then the final one we look at is colonization. Uh, there's been a lot of work done, uh, especially kind of on, you know, if, on the role that colonization played, especially on the colonies. This uh, largely follows in the last couple of decades, at least on the work of Asimogla Robinson, who look, or jo- sorry, Asimogla Johnson Robinson, who look at the colonial legacy and the, the role that it played on institutional development of the colonies. We also, in this, at that part, at least briefly um, discuss the role that colonization played in Europe, you know, in terms of ben- potentially benefiting Europe. There's a big controversy Right now, mainly between historians, well, among historians, but also between historians and economic historians on just how salient that was. And we we briefly hit on that in this chapter. Um, so that's the first half. And yeah, if Mark wants to either discuss more or. I, I, I would like to go a bit into the details of some of the things that you mentioned, because when you refer to culture and institutions, um I'm wondering how do you uh, draw the lines between these two? That's something that I personally struggle with when I'm designing my course, which is, I mean, so it makes some sense to argue that those are two different things and maybe the fields have evolved separately. Um, but at some point, they seem quite similar, right? The rules of the game, if they're not formal, could be interpreted as cultural features. And you're probably the ideal people to talk about this because you guys work on this. You guys work on religion and institutional features behind that, but it's usually understood religion as culture. So I would like to hear your thoughts on, on that. I don't know if you want to start with, with that, Mark, but I also want to know what you think about this, Jared. Okay, so uh, a lot to get into. So the, the, the topic of culture and institutions, I think, has been a, a really uh, growing one. It's really uh, it's been an area of a lot of research in the last 10, 10 years. Um, so, and it's a it's a thorny issue for following reasons. So, 
Douglas North gave a definition of institutions as the rules of a game, where he included formal institutions, things like you know the legal system you have, or the uh, property rights system you have, or the, whether you have elections, or, or if you have a democracy or an autocracy. Those are formal institutions, right? You know, they, they correspond to laws and written things. But he also, in the same books, like his 1990 book on 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 uh, uh, and his. Um, uh, uh, earlier work as well. He also acknowledged those aren't the only types of institutions that matter. So then he talked about something called informal institutions. And so what are informal institutions? Well, informal institutions are things like you know, norms, social norms. Uh, they govern how the formal laws or institutions are enforced. But the problem um, with um, informal institutions, I think, is that they don't necessarily behave in quite the same way as formal institutions, we we can definitely acknowledge that that, that taxonomy can work, but um, the same tools that you need to study the formal institutions might be different for for social for informal. Um, we, we know you know from a lot of work that social norms change slowly, or they can they could be very stable for a long time, then they can drastically change. We can there could be um, you know flipping points and so on, and um, so so they might behave differently. And so I think a lot of uh, work in the last 10, 15 years has been to kind of look at this in a more uh, kind of more theoretically rigorous way, even though so more empirically rigorous way to try and disentangle when is it culture, when is it institutions, um, and to see if culture plays an independent role. And I think the, pa- the papers that we um, look at in our culture chapter and the, the kind of, you know, more relatively well-known papers, uh, such as the paper by Alessina uh, Juliana Nunn on the plough, plough agriculture. That, that paper says that societies with a long history of plough agriculture tend to tend to have developed norms whereby the women stay at home and the men work in the fields, and these norms persist over time. And so that even uh, second-generation uh, children of immigrants in the United States um, are shaped by them. Um, that that seems to say, look, you know, in the in the modern United States, institutions are held uh, are the same regardless of whether you're descended from plow using people or not plow using people. But to the extent that your behaviour is different, that could reflect the role of culture. So I think a lot of the uh, the work in in what's sometimes called persistence analysis has been has been trying to uh, uh, study 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 and identify that that those forces so we 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 try our best to kind of discuss this and and and, and discuss how it inter- is integrated into um kind of the frontier knowledge that we have as economic historians or at least when we're talking to our students or to other people i think that the current uh, frontier research among or debates amongst researchers has pushed that debate one level further and it's not just about cultural persistence but it's often about how do you get uh, moments of cultural change so that's one of uh, the ongoing puzzles in the cultural culture literature that i'm aware of which is um but sometimes culture is very persistent so you have these papers arguing that things like anti-semitic uh preferences or the uh, gender norms persist um or norms about cooperation and trust persist for centuries but then you have other issues where it seems like social norms have changed just in a generation or less so the the famous examples of things like gay marriage where at least publicly disclosed attitudes towards gay marriage or um, have changed quickly or you have the uh, the, the cultural revolutions or sorry, the sex, sex, sexual revolutions of the 60s which also seen rapid it's all rapid cultural a rapid shift in cultural values and so i think um understanding when is culture sticking when is it fast moving is one area of research which is kind of alive and then the other one which you alluded to is the interaction between culture and institutions um so you know like we know that in, in, in Latin America in the 19th century, the formal constitutions and, uh, and institutional arrangements were quite similar to the United States, right? But we also know that political and economic outcomes are quite different than in the United States. And so why was that? Um, I mean, we could have an argument or discussion about is that due to deep cultural differences or is it to do with differences in the de facto allocation of political and economic resources or different economic structures um yeah so so there's a lot 
uh, there's a lot of I think fascinating material um, um, on, on on this topic, and I think our book does provide a very good way in to a lot of these topics for people, or a good uh, or a good one one source kind of stopping point, a uh, resting point, or source book for thinking about you know what shall I read or what papers are relevant on on these topics. I want to so. I want to hear your opinion on this also, Jared, but like, let me bring some <clears throat> like additional element to, to the question, right? Because what you do in is fundamentally providing an articulated view of this literature, which is a literature that has evolved in a rather isolated way. And by that, I mean that pretty much everyone has pushed for their own theory, right? So... In my opinion, the field has evolved with a certain drive for uni causality, if you want, and your book and some other efforts could um, probably agree on the fact that growth is a multi-causal phenomenon, right? So I would like to hear your opinion on how do you think that or how positive is it for the discipline to be pushed a bit in that direction? of um, individual or like independent uh, agendas that uh, are competing more than cooperating? And how do you think that the incentives of the discipline are designed for a better type of outcome? I don't know. I want to hear your thoughts on, on this as precisely the people that are trying to say like, hey, there are all these explanations and maybe there are things in common among them. Would you like to start with that, Jared? Yeah, no, it's a it's a really really good question, and it's actually one of the things that I think was motivating this book, because what and and I, it, I think to be clear, and you know, Mark can correct me if I'm saying something about his own work that isn't agree with, but I think with both of us, you know, we do this too, right? In that this is what the incentives of the profession are, and like in our own academic work, not in this this book, especially papers, you know, papers in academia, or at least are meant to be, you know, somewhat concise, make one point. And it, I think when it comes to this, it does matter what the question is, of course. Um, most papers, you know, something of, you know, 30 pages, double spaced, something like that. You're not going to be able to answer questions as big as the ones that we pose in this book. And I think there is a certain utility to doing that, to making, you know, to being able to make some type of claim and make it a fairly robust claim that X at least, you know, maybe is causally related to Y or something like that, that we can get some type of knowledge on. Now, the problem, Javier, is you're bringing up here, and I think it's a very good one, and which is one of the reasons that we wrote this book, is that when you do that, yeah, I mean, every paper has, you know, a section that where it relates to, to the other literature. But for the most part, I don't think these papers, most papers, and I would, again, I would even include my own in there just because of the limitations of writing a paper. You don't really deeply engage with how your work interacts with a whole host of other works that are getting at similar outcomes, maybe not the exact same outcome, depending on you know what you're writing about. And then when we're thinking about the very big picture, you know, how, how and why economic development or really an economic growth happened in certain parts of the world and not others. I mean, I think, of course, you're right that that this is not a monocausal event. This is I mean, this is what this book is about. And this is what we we try to say. So, look, there are all these competing explanations. Some are um, all of them have elements of truth in them. And all, you know, now how you weight them might be, you know, d different scholars are definitely going to disagree on how heavily some of these should be weighted. But one thing that that most of these works do not do, and um, and again, you know, to, especially when it's articles and not so much books, I think it's for good reason, is consider how the various theories interact with each other. And in, in some cases, one, one thing we really emphasize is the interaction between institutions and culture. We know what Mark was just talking about, how these two things are often inseparable, but they often also complement each other in ways that if you just look at one aspect, especially if you're looking at, say, formal institutions without a consideration of the cultural elements, be they norms, you know, or things like that, that, um, that, really undergird the institutions, you really can't understand how institutions work. You know, Mark brought up the, you know, the idea of, you know, s similar 
uh, kind of political arrangements in say Latin America, you know, you could also make the case that this was one reason why the quote unquote exportation of democracy to, you know, to say Iraq or something like that didn't, you know, didn't really work or in the Middle East more generally is, you know, there are norms associated with such institutions that are really important for them to make them work. And this is when we think about then going to the really big picture. And we discuss this in the context of the book of industrialization and, and the growth that happened after industrialization. There was a lot of, uh, institutional development that happened, but there were also cultural developments that had been happening previously that really contributed to this. And there's even interactions with geography, how geography affected. We mainly focus on institutions, but, you know, certainly you could make the case for culture as well. And um, yeah, so, I mean, I think when, if you want my opinion on the field on this, I think there are benefits to having papers that really narrowly narrowly focus on one thing and really do it well, because that's hard. And you can't really do that well and do it in a very convincing way in, in, in a short enough, in a short enough thing that would be worthwhile of a journal article. I mean, you might be able to do it in a book where you kind of consider all these avenues and that's what we tried to do here, but to really narrowly focus it, I think, uh, it's, it's okay to have, uh, one argument, as long as when it's when you're reading it, or you know when it's being taught, or something like that, it's put into a broader context. That is hard to do, and that's I mean, frankly, one of the openings that we saw in, in a book like this is that there was nothing like that. Um, yeah, so I, yeah, I mean, again, I, I so I think it's fine that it's done elsewhere, but you know, I'm kind of kind of glad, and hopefully, hopefully, others agree with this that you know that that some type of contextualization is needed, and that our book provides it. I think that, I mean, what you point out is something that I feel is regularly forgotten in our job, which is that, I mean, there's a certain role of the community, right? So there's some division of labor that it's necessary. And I feel that what you're doing is uh, providing that, right? So maybe it's great that we have this very well done articles on one specific story we don't need a hundred books about all the connections between them but we need a few and 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 i guess probably that's uh what you're doing and that's very useful um but also in that um i guess in the direction of those intentions i would like to hear about how you deal with the challenge of the timing of the arrival of modernity or the arrival of modern economic growth, which is a big part of uh, what this literature looks like, right? So a good number of papers are about when you really have the arrival of modern economic growth, right? And although your book is called How the World Became Rich, it could have been called probably when and why, right? Separating those questions is, uh, it's pretty difficult. So I would like to hear how you manage that uh, that challenge and and maybe Mark you could um, give us some some insight did you have that conversation for instance like did you have a conversation like well how are we going to prioritize the timing part of the question or the causal part of it or you know we decided um, relatively early on to uh, to mostly to have the first part of a book be thematic and the second part of a book uh, take a more focused and chronological look. I think I was first and foremost. And I think we both um, uh, broadly, you know, we wanted to present a book which the majority of scholars working in this field, they might not agree with every single word we're saying, they might disagree with some bits of emphasis, but no one's going to just throw this book down and say, how dare you say this? How dare you say my particular theory is is, is wrong or bullshit, right? So we didn't want to write that type of polemical book. There are, there are, those bonds are available on the market, and we didn't want to. We didn't want to take a very controversial, strong stance on something that we ourselves have not necessarily, you know, done original work on. So when it comes to the timing, the conventional view is to say it's the Industrial Revolution, right? And then, um, so we're, I think both me and Jared were comfortable with that going in. And then the the the, um, the the thread of more recent research by scholars working on, you know, reconstructing GDP data and so on, suggests that, yeah, it's the Industrial Revolution, but 
um, the, the, the uptick in growth seems to begin a bit earlier than people used to think. So the, the textbook Industrial Revolution is like a revolution in 1770 or something. Um, and and the, all the more recent work has, has both pushed that the date at which the British economy starts to be starts to look a little different, more commercialized, more urbanized, more market orientated, more innovative, pushing it pushes that to the 17th century, really. A lot of work does. At the same time, uh, the work done by uh, Crafts and Harley, now more than 30, 40 years ago, already suggested that the Industrial Revolution um, wasn't as dramatic a break as we sometimes think in terms of measured GDP growth. So it saw growth increase and it saw sustained growth, but actually the rates of growth were quite slow by modern standards. It wasn't like industrial revolution was growing as fast as, as China uh, in, the, in the late 20th, early 21st century. So I think we followed the we followed both the conventional view to say, you know, the industrial revolution is the break point. And then we followed what I think the frontier work of the last 20 years has suggested, which is to emphasize a little bit more of a continuity between the developments in the 17th century and and the 19th century. So smoothing out that rise. So that's that's my, I think that's the stance we took on on the Industrial Revolution. And I think that's the right one to take. Um, We do mention briefly, although we, we could have done more on this, but we didn't mention briefly that there do seem to be periods in history where growth could have burst through earlier. So, um, you know, uh, scholars on Song China have argued that, you know, on things like iron production, Song China was very impressive in the 11th century. Um, uh, Baghdad was the largest city in the world, probably, uh, at some point in the 9th or 10th century. And so the, the Middle East was more developed than Europe at that point. Um the, the Italian city-states, uh, particularly on the recent um, uh, Madison Project data set estimates, the Italian city-states during the Renaissance were were very prosperous by pre-modern standards, as was the Dutch Republic. You could, going further back, uh, you know, the most recent work suggests that classical Greece, Athens in particular, were, were, were growing economies. They did have experienced some economic growth. So, um, you could choose other episodes of, of, of where growth occurred, but none of those episodes achieved what we call modern or sustained economic growth in the sense that they were reversed, uh, reversed within a century or, or, or so of when they took place. So they petered out, and, and after a couple of centuries, people in those places were poorer than, or, or no better off on average than they had been when the, these growth uh, effervescences um, started. So... Um, that's our position on timing, I think. Um, let, let, let me follow like one of the things that you mentioned regarding the singularity of modern economic growth. And um, this is a bit related to your intention to reach a large audience. And what I'm thinking about is that um, I think everyone in the field and probably more generally in economics as, as a discipline, would agree that the world is improving uh, since the Industrial Revolution, right? Like living standards have improved as in no other period in history in terms of the orders of magnitude and the continuity of that improvement, right? However, um, in recent years, the... There's the expansion of this idea in, in the public opinion that things are going wrong, right? And there's a general pessimism and a push against these narratives that people perceive as uh, simplistic, like progress, um, like driven ideologies, right? And I face with that problem. I, I interact actively in the like public opinion discussions in Latin America, for instance, and you perceive that people think that the world is going wrong and that economies are not perceiving some things that are important. And it's hard to deal with that. And what I would like to ask you is, uh, first, if you, I have the impression that you had that in mind in your introduction, you tried to be subtle arguing that not the entire world is rich and you seem to try to convey the fact that this is not a simplistic story of, of well-being and so on. But how do you approach that issue? And that just, I don't want to, I mean, I want to know how do you 
thought about that while writing the book, but also how do you deal with that when teaching, right? Like, I'm sure that your students have those concerns and how do you convey the idea that in the long term, there are these big forces that have made the world better and probably they're dysfunctional at some level, but um, but how that seems to shock with like the opinion of and the intuition that many people have. How do you navigate those 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 challenges? Um, do you have uh, uh, any thoughts on this, Jared? Yeah, no, we do. Um, and, you know, was, we certainly uh, meant the title of the book to be provocative, how the world became rich. Uh, you know, yeah, I, I think, you know, I think it rolls off the tongue decently, uh, decently enough. But, um, yeah, we certainly realize and I mean, we're not we're not fools. We, we realize the entire world is not actually rich. And, yeah, I think there's there's a few things here in your question. You know, I think first is that there are serious challenges that the world is facing and has been facing for a while. I mean, my for, for me, at least, first and foremost, is climate change. And this is something that is directly related to economic development. But as we as we know in the book, too, you know, the economic development is also one way to address climate change, especially technological development that's associated with um, economic development. Um, th- this is something that has the potential to be catastrophic for humanity. Uh, of course, you know, another obvious thing we're dealing with now is the, uh, the threat of some type of nuclear warfare or something like this that is also, you know, to some, to some degree, the result of economic development, you know, where you get the science associated with it. Um, these are things that are not, we, we don't take lightly and w- we completely realize that there are downsides and potentially, you know, extremely catastrophic downsides to economic development. Again, though, you know, I think one thing we note um, a few times in the book, especially in the introductory and concluding chapters, is that economic development is one way to address many of these concerns. I think secondly, is that it often seems like the world is not in fact becoming richer. You know, there are massive inequalities, especially in the, the wealthy worlds that, you know, I think, you know, should be addressed uh, that, that we're not discussing. We're, we're not, we're not making, this book is not really making claims one way or the other. And we're also not making claims on, on the should, you know, this is very much a, a work of, you know, a positive, not a normative book. We're not, we're not, we're not saying anything about whether, you know, you know, even though we, we, we clearly have opinions and I think they probably come through in the book on whether this is a good thing or not. But, um, you know, one thing that that is indisputable is that in the past hundred years and really in the past half century, billions of people have been lifted out of poverty. The fraction of people living on next to subsistence wages is is around, you know, is, is around, say, 10 percent of the world's population now. Now, that's way too high. Of a, of a portion. We, of course, we'd love to, for that to be zero. Um, but historically, and even if you, you don't even have to go back that far, it's not even at the, so at the onset of modern economic growth, say, you know, late 17th, early, or sorry, late 18th, early 19th century, you know, 90, 90 plus percent of the world's population was, was at that level. Now we're down to 10%. It's a massive achievement, you know, and we've we've actually seen massive achievements in our lifetime. You know, a lot of it coming from China, but other parts of the world as well. Um, this is, I think, something that absolutely should be celebrated, and it's also something that I think one of the key things ab- about this book and one of the takeaways, you know, especially maybe from a more policy perspective, is that yes, it's it's clearly important that we understand what happened in history. Because what, and one thing we try to do, even in one of the chapters towards the end, is think about what are some of the preconditions that that England seemed to have, and even you know to some extent some of the other follower countries or countries that were you know, like the Dutch had many of these preconditions at the time. We say, all right, that that's that's good to know. That's good to know that this combination of conditions can lead to that initial spurt of growth. Now, there's two things about that. One is that those conditions aren't going to work the same in all locations. This is what we were talking about before. We're, you know, when cultures are different, they interact with institutions differently. So it's not like you can just transplant those preconditions into another place and expect it to work. That's fine. Um, you know, it's still useful to know what happened. I think uh, the second thing that in the latter, uh, especially the last two chapters we go through is that, you know, we try to understand what happened to England 
or Britain originally, because that's where modern growth took off. But what eventually ended up happening is countries did not need to reinvent the wheel. They didn't need to to go through uh, an industrial revolution from scratch. You, you could, they could borrow. And this is, in fact, where most of the, the growth in the 20th and even in the 21st century has really happened is countries have, have become rich or really moved away from poverty by by borrowing. And when we talk about this, you know, we're, we're, we're talking about something like if, if the if a country has, say, $10,000 per capita GDP, that's not wealthy, by the way we think about it, you know, that, you know, if, if you made $10,000 in the United States, you would be well below the poverty line. But my God, I mean, con- compared to the history of the world, that the, uh, somebody making 10000 you know, a family making $10,000 a year, again, we're not advocating that this is what everybody should be making. But what we are saying is that that there are at least a, a minimal amount of comforts that, that come along with that that most people in world history have not had. And this is something, and we're not the first to say this by any means. There's a, there's been a few books recently, you know, like as Stephen Pinker's book comes to mind that, you know, makes, you know, uses similar data to at least make, you know, make these claims. Now he's arguing for something very different, I think, than we are. Um, but, you know, the, the point still is that the world has largely become rich and there's a lot, there's still a, a long way to go. And uh, understanding how this happened is at least is something that is not going to be a cure or a panacea for the rest of the world's poverty. If it were, we would have done it a long time ago, but it's definitely something we need to get on the right path of, of knowing. How, so now that you bring up this, um, um, I guess like broad objective of, um, of the research process, which is to, like actually enlighten the world with like a complex um, fact in a simple manner. Um, how do you think that thinking about this book and writing your book has changed your your teaching strategy, your teaching methods, right? Because that's probably the most tangible way in which you're actually impacting the um, the the community in the sense of transmitting this um, complex ideas in a, in a simple way. Right. And, and we've talked about how much of this has been intended to be used as an undergrad course. And, and I want to bring something that you mentioned and I, I found very interesting when you were describing your, your stories, which is that all of you made reference to a mentor that was fundamental in, in who you ended up becoming. Right. So you talk about Avner, you talk about Bob, both of which actually have had the great opportunity of being a colleague of, of, of them. Um, they seem to have been very important. How much do you think about that? How much do you think about that when you were writing the book, when you're teaching that maybe there's a bunch of a whole generation of people that are going to be talking about Mark and Jared in 20 years in a podcast. Um, how do you deal with that sense of responsibility? I don't know. Tell me a bit about that. I'm, I'm curious to hear the opinion of both of you on that. Maybe, Mark, you want to start? I, well, yeah, I'll answer briefly. So I, I, your, all those questions were very stimulating, but I actually wanted to also answer your previous question about this, uh, you know, the, the, the lack of growth. But I, I was just saying to start with, I'm a, uh, a, I, 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 I don't, I, I don't think I had any direct mentors. I think the people who influenced me influenced me indirectly. And so um, uh, so I, I would just say that I actually find the books I read, the real, I, I mean, so I, 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 I met Avner Gray for the conference once and he was very kind and he gave me very good, extremely good comments on my paper. So, so, so but, but actually, like, you know, I got, indirectly I was influenced by him by reading his 2006 book, right? Uh, Ditto, I very briefly met Doug North once, but I didn't really get, you know, I didn't even introduce myself, I guess, hi, said hi to him, but he influenced me with his books. So I think that was more influential than any, any or, it's, or it could be indirect. Like you could you could uh, be in a lecture room and you see someone lecture and they really, they give you, they inspire you by, by their lecture, but they never know who your name, what your name is. It's possible as well. So, um, um, yeah, I would just say so Tyler Cowan writes a lot about mentors, and he thinks it's very important to get mentors. And I, I think that's right, but I don't think you should. Um, 
overweight what you will get from a one-to-one interaction necessarily in, in uh, relative to learning by some other means. So um, I learned a lot from people, I think, um, when I was younger, but I, I, one of the reasons I think I um, have a slightly eclectic skill set and interest, set of interests was that I was quite early on really kind of into using, like reading blogs and listening to podcasts uh, before they were as popular as they are now. And so I was accessing a lot of information and knowledge which wasn't on the courses when I was a student. So we weren't being taught, uh, uh, you know, that much about um, institutions when I was an undergrad or grad student. But I was able to uh, find out that stuff through my own uh, research. So, so that's how I, I think about that. But but um, that's a side point, I guess. Uh, I wanted to answer the question about uh, growth and, and inequality and, and where we're going forward. So I, I think we, we definitely have entered into an era where um, economic growth looks like the path of future growth looks less favorable than I think at any time uh, since I've uh, been following these things, worse even than after 2009, where definitely it was a big, big flip. But I, I think that's uh, it's, 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 it's really bad. And that's so the, 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 pes- the reason for pessimism is not that economic growth isn't great and isn't all it's cracked up to be. The reasons for pessimism are are solely due to the fact that economic growth has been too slow, basically. And um, so if you look at the United Kingdom, so I'm originally from from the UK, the United Kingdom was kind of um, converging almost to US living standards up until 2009. But since 2009, its growth rate has just fallen below that of its peer countries in, in, in in the rich world. And is that fine? Like, if you're one of these degrowthers or one of these people who emphasize kind of, you know, other stuff apart from economic growth, you might say, oh, that's, you know, that's fine. The UK is a rich country by global standards. What, how does it matter if it's growing, you know, half a percentage point less a year than it was previously? But if you look at British politics or what's happening to young people, you see it's actually catastrophic. Uh, lower growth rates mean less opportunity. They mean less resources to invest in the future. They mean people uh, are now suffering from a cost of living crisis. They can't afford their energy bill, bills, which are, now, which are now spiking. It means students can't make, pay back their student loans. So um, if growth slows, the world becomes more zero-sum and less positive-sum. And as it becomes more zero-sum, more conflict becomes likely. And the conflict becomes nastier. So I think um, the story of economic growth is kind of almost the most important thing we could write about. And I think it's more... That's, that's partly... Um, why why we why we wrote this book, and it's also why I think uh, development economists and economic historians really should focus on growth, as opposed to saying you know just policy evaluation. Right, uh, thinking about transformative episodes of growth is vital. Something that Larry Pritchett has um, has has argued for. Okay, so maybe I'll try and relate that to your final point, which is how I teach. Um, my students at George Mason have actually. Um, and I think they're different than in many other U.S. universities because a lot of them are—they're uh, from fairly diverse backgrounds. Many of them are immigrants or children of immigrants, so they actually don't seem to need any convincing that growth is really important. Uh, so they, they, they buy this story uh, off the bat. They, 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 don't, they don't question. They don't disagree with me on that. So I don't have to convey them. They're not actually as interested in the types of uh, topics you see. Uh, you read about Ivy League students uh, being being passionate about, uh, but I've not yet taught this book. This summer, I'm um, I've got an online course on economic development, and so it's the first time this book has been assigned for that. And we'll see we'll see how they use it. But I I'm only using the book as a subset of a course, but as part of a background on historical institutions, because a lot of the course is actually going to be about you know kind of modern topics in development economics. It's not an economic history course. Great, Jerry. Would you like to uh, yeah, sure. answer the yeah. question? Yeah, that class sounds uh, pretty awesome, Mark. <laughs> um, yeah, no, I think the the biggest thing I'd say is, that, and I, I did we I would say that at least I can only speak for myself in this. I didn't go into this book with this motivation, but as we were writing it, and it, you know, frankly, I think it's something that. We're, we're both pretty proud of how it came out. And I think especially how accessible it is, how 
you know, I, and I do think, you know, for an academic tome, it's pretty well written, um, which you can't only say about academic works, um, that as we're, as we're writing it, I realized that this, this very much could be the type of book that somebody picks up, especially if they're assigned it and maybe as an undergrad or maybe just, you know, an interested high school student or somebody like that, that picks, that picks it up, sees it, and then realizes this is what they want to do with their life. And if, if that just happens with say one person, that would be amazing. I mean, and I think that that's one of the reasons that, you know, that we often get into this field in the the beginning or, you know, get into this is to inspire people to think about these types of issues that we find to be really important. And I do think that what we've done with this book is, is at least given ourselves the opportunity to that, where that might happen with a book like this, um, and so, yes, absolutely. I think that that's one of the, that actually I think might end up being, and probably will be end up being if, if, if that in fact happens, the most important thing that comes out of this book is that, you know, people will especially pick it up early before they've really, they, before they've really decided a career path, or especially maybe even before they've decided to go to graduate school or something like that. And really just want to do this with their lives, really want to understand some of the issues. Because one thing that that comes out of our book, too, is that while we say a lot of what the research has done, there are still a lot of open questions there, you know, there and and there's open questions that are we don't even know are open yet, for instance, you know, so with so stuff that will happen over, say, the next decade or so that I think a lot of the research that's been done on, say, Western Europe or, you know, increasingly in China, um, will help inform. And so, yes, I mean, I think that if there's one, if there's one thing that would be the most satisfying from this book, it would be that. And like Mark, we, I, I haven't, we haven't really taught out of the book yet. Um, I will this coming up year. Um, but in a sense, it's, it's kind of builds on stuff we've been, I, at least myself and I think Mark too, have been teaching just, we haven't had this type of uh, book to really teach out of. You know, I've taught mainly out of a variety of articles, for instance, that, you know, almost, I think maybe all of which we cite in this book, um, that, that, uh, you know, I have to bring together for a class that in, in a way that it's mainly then it's about a lecture, me, me telling the class, well, this is how, X relates to Y, how we should be thinking about the pathway that uh, that growth happened in a certain context. And, you know, one thing the book does is it does that all in a very succinct way that also allows us to get to other things, too. So in a, a class like your, you know, I teach the Europe, a European history class that does a European economic history class that does this. But I love to, at least in a class like that, talk a little more about China, say, even though it's obviously not part of Europe when we think about comparative, excuse me, comparative economic growth, that has a lot of implications for how we think about European economic history. Um, it's really hard to do that when you're just teaching out of articles because you're already behind the eight ball by having to do so much with just getting the Europe stuff down. I think what this book does is it presents so much information in such a way that students don't have to read, you know, 30 articles to get the information you want them to understand, to get, to understand what the big issues are. And, and because once you do that, I mean, you lose the students, you know, there's only so much that the brain can intake and, you know, it's one class out of five they're taking or something at the time. Um, so, yeah. And I think because of that, hopefully this will be something that, you know, to the extent that undergraduates enjoy the book and I, you know, we certainly hope they do. We certainly wrote it so that it was, it, would be about as I hopefully hopefully others view it this way and as you know, as, you know, as enjoyable as this material is uh, can be um, that that it's something that they really do kind of start to internalize and hopefully inspires them. Yeah, I think that's really important. Let, let me ask you one one final question, which I ask all my to all my guests, which is why writing a book. So this goes back to just what you were uh, talking about, Jared. But um, I know you've written previous books before and um i would like what to to hear your opinion on the broader issue right how our discipline uh our discipline's incentives are probably aligned for people to write more and discuss more articles and in that context why it might be important or under which 
circumstances, writing a book makes sense. Um, I would like to hear the opinion of both of you on this. Maybe Mark, you you might want to start with this. Yeah, sure. Um, so this goes back to one of your earlier questions, actually, which I, uh, I was going to jump in on, which is that um, most articles um, these days are really influenced by this policy evaluation um, causal effects literature. So basically, uh, what we're interested in when we read those papers is, is does this does a particular intervention or, or treatment, it could be historic, it could be contemporary, have a, have an effect, statistically significant and economically meaningful effect on an outcome we care about, like GDP growth or incomes or whatever. Um, and, and so if you can show that there's that such an effect and it's robust and it's causal, right? It's well identified. It's a real effect. It's not just a, a haphazard uh, correlation. Then, then basically you can publish the paper, right? Um, but then as, as students or as uh, people interested in the topic, like how the world grew rich, what we're really interested in is like, um, not does this one policy have a positive effect in this particular setting what we're interested in is, in some sense, closer to VR squared. We're interested in how much of the differences in growth, how much of the variation we observe in incomes across the world or in growth rates, how much of that could be explained by by um, by different policies or institutions or different factors. And so I think, yeah, the the if we just accumulate, it, it's valuable to accumulate knowledge about causal effects. Right, that's important. That's genuine knowledge. We can add to the the tree of tree of knowledge, but without any attempt to um, put this all together and try and tell a bigger story, then it's a little bit limiting uh, and frustrating. Both, I think, for uh, students on a, taking a course where they're just reading papers, and even I think for the profession. So I think that books are more important, and traditionally in economic history. They were seen as important. So the big players in economic history, I think, up until the generation about uh, uh, um, older than me and Jared, did write books. So we mentioned some of these names already: Bob Allen, um, uh, Abner Greif, Greg Clark wrote a very influential book, 2007 book. And so um, it was a book, economic history unique, uniquely in economics, um, post World War II economics was a book discipline, somewhat of a book discipline. Um, and at that, when that was happening in, in say, the 1990s and early 2000s, the top economic historians didn't publish in the top economics journals that often, actually. They, were, they did occasionally, but they were more likely to publish these books. And I think what we've seen in the last 15 years is the top economic historians have featured very heavily in the top um, econ journals. They've written great papers and, and published those papers, but they haven't actually yet written books. That off that uh, in many cases, and so there is a, a gap in the market um, for something which is synthesizing the literature and something which is trying to tell a bigger story. And um, I mean, I don't think this is a final book, or right? It's not the, not our not either of our final words on the topic of economic growth, but I think it is definitely filling that market niche of of uh, of tying together a very important body of research, which is you know emerged in the last 20, 25, 30 years. Yeah, no, and I think, uh, yeah, I agree with everything Mark said. And I think to just a couple things to add is, you know, one, as you mentioned, we both have written books prior to this. The books that, separately, the books that we had written are different from this book in that both uh, my book and um, Mark's book with Noel Johnson uh, was were meant to, to, to make a direct and, you know, in wide scale, kind of wide scope, rather, uh, academic contribution, not to say that, and to be clear, the, the, the current book we're talking about now, how the world became rich, we do view as certainly an academic contribution, just a different type. Now, I think, you know, a reason to write a book like the type we wrote before, prior was, you know, it was really twofold. Sometimes there are some arguments that just take much, much more than the standard 30, even 40 pages. Another thing is that there are some aspects of an argument to really make an argument complete that are not are not really publishable in the in the sense of you know it requires maybe a lot of back historical background which in the economics profession is uh, you know is always going to be limited when talking about journal articles or you know or or you know really kind of you know maybe big case study evidence or things like this that 
that really when when all brought together make for a really convincing argument but individually not so much now this book is different in that you know the we you know the first half of it is not in a sense original research in that we're bringing together different articles now it's original in the sense that we were able to kind of organize it and bring it together in a way that even I think in many cases, maybe the authors hadn't, cons- you know, themselves had considered. Um, and I do think that there's an incredible, that's incredibly valuable. Now within economics, there are places like the journal of economic literature, for instance, where, which, you know, bring together longer papers that do similar things. But one thing that w- w- I think is also really important about the current book that we do is then in the last half of the book, it's not just about bringing together this literature. It's then about, all right, so what does this, what do these insights tell us about how the world became rich? Not just, not just in Britain, even though obviously we focus quite a bit on Britain, but then how it spread to the rest of the world. And then eventually on you know, the 20th and 21st century spread well outside of you know Europe and its offshoots. This is something where, you know, I, I do think that it's not in each case of what, what we did in this book, none of these chapters without dramatic changes would be individually publishable given the standards of the current standards of economics in that, you know, we, we, you know, bring in some data from other others, but, you know, we're, we're making causal arguments that are based on hundreds of pages of, of work at this point, not, not based on some very narrow data set that's pushing one argument. In fact, you know, as Mark was just noting, we do the opposite. We, we try to bring together theories, um, which at this point is something, you know, and I think that this, you know, for better or for worse, um, is not something that the economics profession, or it's, I think this is not just economics at this point. I think this is most of the social sciences, at least from what I've read, does not does not uh, does not value in the publication process. This is not to say that economists don't value this. In fact, I I hope, and you know, I, I'm maybe cautiously optimistic that the type of work we've done in this book will be highly valued in the, the way that, you know, bringing together various theories and thinking how they interact with each other um, uh, is, is something that is not done as, as frequently, maybe outside of the journal of economic literature. Um, so I, uh, yeah. And, and, in, and in terms of what, you know, why, why a book then? I mean, I think it's, it's the combination of those things. It's, it's both the, the, the pages that you need, but it's also the type of arguments that you can really nail once you have those pages that you can't nail in 30 pages. So I, I think both are valuable. You know, I, I, I'm not, I don't think Mark or I would advocate for, you know, the, the entire profession moving to a book a book centric profession, say like, you know, like history is or something like that. You know, there are, there are disciplines that are book centric. And I think that that serves their purpose as well. I, I think that there's, there's a reason that economics, and I, I think in many respects, a good reason that economics has removed, has moved to, towards more of a journal centric profession. But yeah, no, there's, there's definitely still plenty of space for books. And I, you know, hopefully the audience will eventually agree if they read our book, books like this. Um, I agree. I mean, I think you wrote a great book. I do think that it's a very valuable outcome. So thank you a lot for that. Thanks a lot for for being here. Uh, this was very interesting. And you're a lot reading the book again. I'm going to use it in my course as well. Um, and well, I wish you the best of uh, of best luck with with um, with the sales of the book. And and I highly recommend it to anyone who is interested in growth from a long-term perspective. Uh, let me say thanks again, and I'll see you guys soon. All right, well, thank you so much. Great. Yeah, thanks. All right.